Chapter Three of England in the Middle Ages. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. England in the Middle Ages by Elizabeth O'Neill. The Angevin Despotism, eleven fifty four through twelve sixteen. Henry the Second of England was the first of a new line of kings but he had much in common with his mother's race. Not so tall or handsome as the conqueror and his sons, he had the same sturdy build. He is described as round-headed, with reddish hair and keen gray eyes, a description reminiscent of Rufus. Men remarked on his tough, coarse hands and his bowed legs, for he was ever in the saddle. Nor would he sit except at meals or in council. He was tireless in energy and terrible in anger uncontrolled as were all the angevins he was twenty-two years old in eleven fifty four and he had a vast inheritance in france he was a frenchman in his sympathies but too much the lawyer and statesman not to enter with zest into the task of administration in england the work he did was finally to crush the anarchical elements in english feudalism his method was centralization and he took the people into his alliance. His ideal was not above those of his day, and was circumscribed by the outlook of feudalism, but his vigor wrought to a better end than he dreamed. There was a hidden danger in the despotism, which the first Angevin built up. The crown itself might become the oppressor of all classes. This is what happened under the third Angevin, John, and in a minor degree under Richard. A new rearrangement of forces in the state was brought about to resist this tyranny. Henry's policy had fostered the amalgamation of Norman and English institutions, in time aided in the amalgamation of the two races, so that the resistance to John was a national movement in which all classes had some part. Henry's first care was to restore as far as possible the system of Henry I with the aid of the ministers who had survived from that reign. Stephen's mercenaries were sent out of England and the adultering castles destroyed. Henry met with very little resistance, for he acted at the same time with firmness and judgment. In 1159 he instituted the Great Scottish, by which barons were allowed to commute their military service for a payment of money with which the king could hire mercenaries. This was at once a blow at feudal custom and a step towards military efficiency, for the mercenaries were not hampered by any time limit as the feudal knights were. Their forty days' service was of little use to the king when he gave battle overseas. Later in the reign, the Assize of Arms decreed that every man in England, even the lanes who were rich enough, should be armed according to his means. This was really a revival of the old English militia, and an excellent measure for national defense. The development of the administrative and judicial system on the lines laid down by Henry I went on apace. Originally, the term curia regis was used to denote two different things. It described the commune concilium, the whole assembly of tenants-in-chief, which in a limited sense replaced the old English witten, or meeting of wise men, as general advisers to the king. 
It described two of the ministers who administered the royal finance and justice. In the former aspect, it became the first exchequer, and as a special trained class was told off to do its work, the exchequer, even under the first Henry, divided itself from the curia proper. The methods by which the king's accounts were kept, notches and slips of wood, bring home to us the primitive nature of twelfth-century civilization. The name curia regis was gradually limited to the body which administered royal justice. The greater part of its activity was spent in the shire courts, for Henry II made the system of itinerant justices, or justices in ire, which his grandfather had conceived, a regular institution. The hundred courts sank into insignificance, for the private feudal courts usurped their functions, but royal justice practically took possession of the shire courts. Henry secured this in two ways. The inquest of sheriffs in 1170 resulted in a wholesale removal of the sheriffs, who were largely local magnates, and in so far had feudalized the courts. Royal officers were put in their places, and the justice which they dealt was in so far royal justice. But the most important cases were reserved for the justices in ire. Practically all criminal justice and the greater number of civil cases fell to them, and as they gave law they made it. The common law of England was fashioned from their findings. The centralization of the source of law triumphed over local peculiarities and alone made a common law possible. In time the shire courts became mere historic survivals, and as such remain today. The policy of Henry, or the more enlightened legality of the age, revolutionized too the methods of judgment. The method of compurgation, which seems intolerable to us now, can hardly have been satisfactory, even in the simple conditions of medieval society. There had been a growing tendency to reject oath helpers for fiery or watery ordeal, to modern minds even more impossible, as is too the Norman system of trial by duel, especially when this came to be performed by proxy. Trial by jury in our modern sense was a thing of very slow growth. Its germ has been discerned in a hundred of our ancestral institutions. Alfred used to be acclaimed its father. In point of fact, it was the Norman kings who began tentatively to apply the principle on which it rests, and it was Henry II who made this application in any sense common. The system of trial by inquest, in which jurators were sworn to inquire impartially into the truth of a case and declare it, now became common in civil cases. Henry II restored the use of the grand jury of presentment, but the growth of a real jury system was slower even in criminal than in civil cases, and the methods of justice remained throughout the Middle Ages marvelously crude to our modern notions. One aspect of Henry's policy was not so successful. He was anxious to round off his system by defining and limiting the power of the church. It was partly to this end that he gave the Archbishopric of Canterbury to his friend Thomas Becket, a courtly deacon whom he had appointed chancellor. Becket was a brave soldier and an excellent boon companion, a lively talker, frank and excitable, handsome too, with his tall figure and 
clear pallor set off by his dark hair henry had found him active in the chancellorship and had every reason to hope much from his cooperation in his ecclesiastical measures as chancellor he had taxed the church heavily for henry's wars plunging his sword into the bowels of his mother but there was an incalculable element in medieval religion becket seems to have taken his appointment as a call from god and never a bad man he disgusted henry by his sudden conversion into a saint with some of the asperities of sanctity which were bound to clash with the policy of the king he resigned the chancellorship and stood as it were on the defensive in eleven sixty four henry issued his program for the church in the famous constitutions of clarendon the clerk in those days did not correspond exactly to our modern priest or clergyman there were hundreds of scholars in minor orders who never aspired to the priesthood and in the later middle ages any educated man could claim benefit of clergy it was said that during henry's reign already more than a hundred murders had been committed by clerks in one prominent case when a canon of bedford was accused of murder he was acquitted on oath in the bishop's court and flouted the king's justice who summoned him to answer to the charge henry swore by the eyes of god to bring him to submission but the archbishop declared the competence of the church courts to try clerical offenders this case probably merely accelerated the issues the constitutions of clarendon formulate much that had been common practice and to which becket could not have objected but there were clauses which represented an innovation on the practice which had grown up and it is round these that the controversy grew henry desired that a clerk accused of a crime should first be brought before the lay court where he could plead benefit of clergy he should then be taken before the church court and if found guilty receive the appropriate unfrocking and spiritual deprivations and then be handed over to the lay court to be tried again as a layman and punished as such becket regarded this as grossly unfair and as insulting to the ecclesiastical arm he seems to have agreed to the king's policy before its definite formulation but he rejected the constitutions and reproached himself bitterly for his lapse suspending himself from his functions and craving pardon from the pope an attack of a particularly invidious nature was made on the archbishop by his enemies referring to a point of his administration as chancellor becket fled to france where the pope then was but found less zealous support than he could have wished on several occasions in history the papacy has resented the action of two zealous englishmen in pitting their power against english practice for six years the archbishop remained in exile and then a kind of truce being called he returned to his see in eleven seventy to find himself forgotten and looked upon askance by all save the poor who remembered his charities he was armed with power from the pope to suspend roger archbishop of york who had crowned the king's son henry the king being anxious to secure a certain secession and two other bishops the news that he had issued the sentence on christmas day reached henry overseas four days afterwards 
armed knights animated by the bitter words which henry had let fall in his anger at the news burst into canterbury cathedral at the hour of vespers and brutally killed the archbishop taunting him as a traitor he met his death with the courage of a soldier and the resignation of a saint and when the monks took him up and marked the hair shirt beneath his vestments a revulsion of feeling spread among the people and he was acclaimed saint his shrine became the richest in the land and at it henry did public and sincere penance he renounced the constitutions but it is difficult to say which side had won the victory the church kept its jurisdiction over clerks accused of crimes though not in cases of high treason or offences against the forest laws on the other hand minor offences whether by clerk or layman were judged in the lay courts as also were all suits involving the right of property even presentation to livings the church however monopolized jurisdiction over marriages and wills on the question of appeals to the pope henry simply laid down his arms the new age was to see new disputes but the ground of the quarrel shifted henry's position as the head of a great empire impressed his contemporaries greatly but he does not seem to have formed any great scheme of extension or organization beyond an anxiety characteristic of the age to aggrandize himself through the marriage of his children he inherited normandy and maine from his mother anjou from his father aquitaine when he married eleanor of that duchy and the former wife of the french king eleanor was ten years older than her husband and had proved as incompatible with him as with louis by his son geoffrey's marriage he got control of brittany and thus the english king held more of french territory than the french king himself who was his natural enemy henry showed a feverish anxiety to have the secession to his territories settled and by crowning his son in his lifetime roused his ambition unduly the brothers were always quarrelling amongst themselves and eleanor who was finally imprisoned encouraged them in revolt against their father in eleven seventy three the young king rose in rebellion louis and william the lion of scotland helped him and the discontented barons in england chiefly those who had lands also in normandy made one final bid to overthrow henry's despotic and ordered rule henry beat down all opposition and the warm support which the english people gave him in the struggle showed the norman barons the hopelessness of their aims william the lion was taken prisoner henry had at the beginning of his reign recovered northumberland and cumberland lost to the scotch under stephen and now once more a scotch king did homage to his brother of england in eleven eighty three the young king henry died but his three brothers continued their quarrels the favor which henry showed to john the youngest was one great motive of dissension earl john showed something of his character in his outrageous behavior as governor in ireland in eleven eighty five for ireland had been added to henry's empire in the casual way in which these things were sometimes done in the middle ages it may give the modern reader a thrill to read of the beginnings of that relation which have been pregnant of so much but the imagination of contemporary seems to have been stirred hardly at all when henry quietly annexed ireland the two williams had probably both intended the conquest of ireland 
but time failed them as it might have failed henry too but for the appeal which dermot king of lanister made for help to recover his wife from the lord of latrum who had carried her off ireland was still in a tribal state she had received christianity in the fifth century at least and realized it vividly but her church remained missionary and monastic and though irish learning and irish sanctity had been proverbial for some centuries the people seemed to have no genius to guide them to political unity they were a natural prey but in eleven sixty six henry could not give them his attention dermot was however allowed to get what help he could from the barons and strongbow earl of pembroke went fought his battles married his daughter and set all ireland by the ears henry himself went over in eleven seventy two and many kings including the high king roderick o'connor did homage to him in a dim blind way probably realizing nothing of the significance henry put on his suzerainty the king left a viceroy the norman adventurers won lands at the point of the sword north east and south of the pale intermarried and became more irish than the irish themselves henry's plan to interest john in ireland designing it for his patrimony was not a success but the earl's witty tutor gerald of barry has left us a lively account of the people and their character which differs hardly at all from that of frossard or even edmund spencer in which allowing for the difference in the external details of civilization might stand as a sufficiently accurate description of the irish of to-day henry's last years were spent in a grief-stricken struggle against his sons aided by the new french king philippe augustus ill and weary he made peace on the fourth of july eleven eighty nine and sick at heart at finding that john too was among the rebels he died three days after in his fever forgetful of his successes in the past and crying shame to himself as a conquered king a glamour has been set over the reign of richard of the lionheart who succeeded his father the titular sovereignty of ireland alone falling to john his only surviving brother he was almost an ideal knight as the age understood knighthood but a very indifferent king he did england the service of neglecting her and allowing the system of henry the second to go on steadily working under men more capable than himself to direct it though the memory of richard has been cherished by the english people he was perhaps the least english of our early kings he was much more interested in the french empire which he inherited almost intact and he valued england mainly as a source of income the country was drained for his enterprises and but that the times were prosperous and justice strictly given much misery might have ensued richard's rule must be described as essentially a tyranny mitigate it by its character of routine the king's first thought was to raise money to join the third crusade an enterprise which was drawing the leaders of chivalry all over europe the great sultan saladin had wrested at jerusalem from the christian kings who had held it nearly a hundred years since the first crusade the third crusade was the greatest of all on a larger scale and enticing greater personalities than any other its progress is interesting as showing medieval chivalry at its worst and best 
its courage and high aims its capacity for endurance its charity and withal its jealousies and bitter hate the crusades had an enormous effect on the general progress of europe but they do not touch the political history of england very nearly except through the financing of richard he was reckless to raise money selling the chancellorship to william longchamp bishop of ely and foregoing for payment the homage which the scotch king had done his father at falaise richard was animated by his love of adventure with the added motive of repentance for his conduct towards his father for which he sorrowed in characteristic medieval manner with almost shameless penitence philippe augustus his erstwhile ally and now his inevitable rival went too but quarrelled with the english king and soon came back richard stayed and quarrelled still but did marvellous deeds at the siege of acre whence he marched for jerusalem but could not take it for want of support although the frenchmen were as loud in his praise as the english finally the christian secured a footing on the east coast of palestine and access to the holy sepulchre on his way back to england richard was captured by an enemy leopold of austria and handed over to another enemy the emperor henry the sixth england was drained once more to raise his enormous ransom he returned to find his brother john in revolt william of ely had proved a faithful minister to the king but offensive in his ostentation to the barons and john had led resistance to him walter bishop of rouen replaced him but there was no more peace john gave the new minister no loyal support and richard's return found him in alliance with the french king and a design upon the crown john was in normandy and richard having declared his lands forfeit in a great council at nottingham and having had himself recrowned at winchester crossed over to face his brother john came into his allegiance and richard in his grand manner forgave him the french and english kings then gave vent to their public and private grievances against each other in open war in intermittent struggles with the french king or his french vassals fill up the tale of richard's remaining years he devoted himself with enthusiasm to the building of chateau galliard on the rock of andels by sign the saucy castle which was to protect normandy against french invasion it was however in fight against william of limoges over a question of treasure trove that richard met his death from an arrow shot while storming the castle of chalouse richard had the curiosity to question the crossbowman who had let the arrow fly and who had been taken prisoner as to his motive it was he boldly told him revenge for the death of his father and two brothers richard bade his attendants give the man money and let him go but after the king's death his sister countess joan of sicily saw to it that the man was slain richard with his tall fine figure his blue eyes and fair hair with his lordly condescensions and his fine ardours was the most notable prince in europe and the archetype of medieval chivalry he was lettered too and wrote quite reputable poetry in the south french style he asked that his heart might be buried at rouen and his body at his father's feet at font evrod and there it was lain by hugh bishop of lincoln the carthusian saint who had been called from his charterhouse to fill that sea 
he is one of the most striking figures of the period in his gentle asceticism and practical courage though a close friend of the king he had resisted in eleven seventy nine a grant of military service which hubert walker the justiciar who had replaced walter of rouen demanded the exact ground of the resistance is not very clear but hubert's action in defending what he considered englishmen's rights has been held in grateful remembrance it may have been resultant on this refusal that a great survey of england was carried out in the next year by the new common method of inquest it is to be noted that two local knights were added in each county to the body before whom the local jurors swore a remote foreshadowing of the constitution of the parliament whose growth was to be the chief feature of the thirteenth century richard on his deathbed named as his successor his brother john known as Lackland, because Henry II had not originally given him a share in his continental possessions, as he did to his other sons. Richard had originally intended that Arthur of Brittany, his brother Geoffrey's son, should secede him, but his own premature death found Arthur but a boy, and Richard prevailed on the barons to swear allegiance to John. The French king supported Arthur, but John, with the help of his mother Eleanor, who showed herself as discreet and helpful towards the son she loved as she had been factious with the husband she disliked, prevailed, and Philippe made peace in 1200. John's repudiation of his wife Isabella of Gloucester and his marriage for an amorous whim with Isabella of Agoulême, the promised bride of Hugh of Louisson, alienated the French king once more and with his support arthur made a new attempt to seize john's french possessions he was taken prisoner in april twelve o three died in the new tower at rouen no one doubted that he was murdered and john's french subjects quite alienated made no further resistance to the french king john sat feasting at rouen in the spring of twelve o four with his wife while Philippe annexed Normandy, boasting in a mad way that what was lost so easily could be as easily won back. Anjou was taken as easily, and later, Poteau. Within two years, nothing remained to the English king of his father's vast possessions in France but Guyon and southern Aquitaine. The Gascons were as foreign to France as they were to the English, and preferred the more distant rule, and so remained under English rule for two and a half centuries longer the loss of the battle of bovines in twelve thirteen put the final seal on the loss of john's french possessions the defeat was due to the failure of the emperor otto the fourth to cooperate in john's well-conceived plan for john was no mean strategist in the periods of energy which alternated with his curious moods of indifferent luxury the final severance came approximately at the moment when an ultimatum prepared by the leaders of the church and the baronage was ready for presentation to john as a protest in the name of all the people against his misrule from twelve o four onwards john had perforce spent most of his time in england he combined the indifference of richard to england's welfare with some of the positive personal vices shamelessly avowed which had marked rufus his tyranny was not unlike that of the Red King, allowing for the march of time. 
but there was an element of gross cruelty in john which made his misrule more monstrous he slowly starved to death the wife and son of william de Raus, the first baron who rose against him and he had twenty-eight youths left as hostages by welch princes their fathers hanged in a row discontent was first aroused by his continual levying of scottages and tallages with which he performed no public service he alienated the church by his defiance of the interdict which the great pope innocent laid upon the land when john on the death of hubert walter obstinately refused to accept as archbishop of canterbury innocent's nominee stephen langton the quarrel between the king and the chapter of canterbury over their respective nominees had given the chance for papal interference and the greatest of all the popes was not the one to prove diffident in interference after two years of menace england was put under interdict in march twelve o eight the churches were closed and no services held or sacraments administered except baptism and extreme unction allowed for the safety of souls most of the higher clergy fled dreading the reprisals of the king who enriched himself with vast confiscations of the church's goods and lands for five years john held his wayward course and then suddenly demoralized by the pope's sentence of deposition whose execution he entrusted to the french king he rendered to innocent a grovelling submission through the legate pandolf the french fleet lying at dam ready for the invasion of england was destroyed but the english nobles would not follow john to france to follow up the victory stephen langdon landed in england absolved the king and tendered to him the coronation oaths again john had done well to keep stephen out of england for he proved a great patriot he was an englishman probably a northerner and in so far his leadership of the opposition to the king's misrule typifies the consolidation of the norman and english races which had been a steady process under the angevin rule stephen's first act was to assemble the barons and read them a lecture with the charter of henry i as text they decided to take it as their watchword meanwhile the battle of bouvains was fought and lost and john returned to england full of angry plans of revenge against the barons who had refused to follow him he mustered his mercenaries meanwhile the opposition presented their ultimatum he must confirm the charter of henry i it is significant that neither richard nor john had found it necessary to issue a charter at their accession john tried to foil them by meaningless negotiations through langton who did not openly join the rising at easter twelve fifteen a baronial army under five earls mustered at stamford and marched upon london the citizens received them with open arms and john drew off to windsor at running meet near by he was forced to set his hand to magna carta the famous great charter of english liberty in which langton and his advisers had striven to formulate all the grievances under which the nation groaned a committee of twenty-five barons was to be elected to enforce its provisions a clause significant of the faith given to john's promise in point of fact he never meant to keep it after the thing had been done and the barons had withdrawn he writhed on the ground in an agony of rage shrieking hysterically that they had given him five-and-twenty over kings 
he shortly obtained from innocent absolution from his promise the barons desperate defied the pope's threats of excommunication and took the false step of inviting louis the son of the french king to england to lead their cause this gave john a party from may to october twelve sixteen they fought when john's sudden death ended the struggle and made a rearrangement of parties possible the king had narrowly escaped drowning in crossing the wash where he lost his treasure and angry and exhausted he persisted in eating fruit and drinking cider to his own destruction he was buried in the church of st wolfston at worcester and his memory remains most odious among english kings the great charter which he had signed became the rallying point for a new age a long document of over sixty clauses it has been traditionally regarded as summing up the principles of english liberty and as being adequate for the interpretation of the nation's rights at any period in point of fact it is little but a feudal document and the rights it would enforce were feudal rights its very minuteness illustrates this it was a charter of liberties rather than of liberty provided against the king's misuse of his feudal rights over his tenants the kernel of a wider liberty is only discerned in the stipulation that they in their turn were to do likewise towards their vassals the liberties enumerated do not touch the face of the great mass of englishmen who were still villeins the church was to have its freedom freedom that is from royal encroachments whereas it was the papal power which was growing in this century and resented in the next from some points of view the great charter had a retrograde aspect inasmuch as it sought to check the growth of royal justice in short if it is to be accepted as one of the three great charters in the bible of the english constitution it is because englishmen have read into it the hidden significance of an inspired text End of chapter 3